it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber. I'm the Director of Marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, the CEO of Strata, talks with Ben Gallon, PT, and the owner of Evolution Rehab Group. Paul and Ben talk through the difference between profit and cash flow, the impact of accounts receivable on cash flow, why you must fix your cancel and no-show rate, and how payment delays have huge effects on your business. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. One of the earliest things that I think most business owners, including practice owners, should learn, and you don't have to be a CFO to do this, is like you need to understand the difference between profit and cash flow. And it's like stuff that you and I might take for granted. I've learned my lesson on that several times. We've all done it, right? I think every entrepreneur at some point in their life, hopefully earlier in their career, that profit doesn't equal cash flow and cash flow certainly does not equal profit. And so most, if they're, you know, and again, I'm generalizing here, but if they're even trying to be financially literate, they might look at a P&L or they might look at a balance sheet. But it's, I think, surprisingly rare for practice owners to be looking at both of those things. And anyway, I don't want to get too technical here, but the last time we were chatting, you were really like hitting on this idea of cash flow. And I think it's the way you describe it, I think, is much more accessible, I think, to the average healthcare professional than me. I talk like an investor nerd, I guess. But can you just talk to me as if I'm sure. just like a newbie at business? Give me like the Ben overview of what in the world is cash flow and how is that different from my profit? And like usual, I might get this in a circuitous way. So I've recently had an opportunity to evaluate some companies for purchase, merger acquisition, mainly actually all acquisition, no merger, for another company that was having me look at books, physical therapy clinics, because they were purely VC people. They didn't know what smells rotten versus like what's plausible. So I mean, A, it's amazing some of these books, what they look like for companies who are billing, one of these companies is billing like 11 million a year between their practices. And so you be, oh, these would be some nice books. And boy, this could be, oh, give me 30 minutes, I'll dive into this. And it was like still done on paper. And it was still done on like Excel. I mean, it was unbelievable. So it's to our points that we're saying, you know, not all healthcare people are just naturally CFOs. But one thing that I typically look for is I try to find cash flow. And then when I try to figure out their valuation and they're just doing it off of top line revenue, in my mind, that's like a joke. And then I look at something like EBITDA, which is still important. But then I look at cash flow and that tells a lot. So going to cash flow, the, the difference is whenever I start a company, the first thing I definitely do is the elementary school of business of putting in my, how much I expect to earn, how much that's going to cost me. And I've got a net. Now let's multiply that times 52 weeks or times eight hours, times 40 hours in 50 weeks. And I'll be generous and I'll throw in like, you know, on a physical therapy side, maybe I'll throw in like 5% non-payment. Maybe I'll throw in X percentage of time in South Florida where I know patients don't walk in the door because you have thunderstorms. Or maybe I'm up north and I have snowstorms and I start beating this up and mitigating it, but I still have this accrual, which was a word I didn't know 15 years ago, but I still have this accrual-based performer that says, wow. It's even like people create their monthly budget and they don't take into account that they have certain things to do at different times of the month. So it's like, I know I'm going to have a budget surplus of $2,200 this month, but yet why am I literally not able to pay my bill on the 15th? Well, it's because you didn't account for the fact that those come due at different times and not 
you know, when you calculated your net for the month, it was on an accrual basis. Some of that stuff didn't come in right away. Your payroll was delayed, et cetera. But you just created this net. And you didn't realize that some of your monthly expenses are front-loaded. And maybe 80% of your bills are between the 1st and the 15th. You can't do this accrual-based accounting even for your own budget. But for a therapy clinic, I think a lot of people do accrual-based accounting. Are you profitable? Sure. I know I bill 100. I pay my staff 60. I must be profitable. Okay. The definition of profitable is that your expected top-line earning is higher than your expected cost. You are profitable. Congratulations. And there are some businesses in the world, and we know them, that don't even care about being profitable because they have other exit strategies that don't rely on profit. They rely on mass and market size and market share and stuff. But I think the average therapy clinic, the average, because I could name one, which I won't name, that is going on a pure market share basis and they don't care about profit. But most of us care about profit, especially solo practice, even if they own a couple of practices, it's profit. But profit is cash flow. So going to your question about cash flow, if you look at how long your accounts receivable is sitting there, and you really digest what that means, which is that's how long your revenue is sitting somewhere before you can process it to become revenue. So right then, it's not revenue. It's accounts receivable, which, again, is a weird terminology. You know, it's money you hope to get. And it's money you hope to get quick because you built out this budget sheet that showed I build 1000 I paid 500 I need 500 at the end of the month. Well, the reality is Medicare takes 15 days to process, assuming that you did everything correct to get it to Medicare and don't throw in a holiday or something. So you have 15 days to process with Medicare. And then if they have a crossover secondary, you've got another 20 to 30 to 45 days for that crossover. And you might go, well, you know, that's only 20% of the payment. Well, in most PT clinics, that's your profit. Frankly, in most therapy clinics, that is your profit. So if you're waiting now 65 days for that to come through, and God forbid, it's like, New York ship who crosses over to Blue Cross Blue Shield erroneously on every crossover, even though Blue Cross Blue Shield only covers their hospitalization. And then it bounces back and goes to healthcare. And then God forbid, like me, that you're a facility-based billing. So then they assume you're a hospital, reject it, send it back. Next thing you know, it's 84 days before you get paid on this. I looked at one today. It was a bill from March that didn't get rectified till November. And it's of no fault of anyone. I mean, I looked at all the correspondence communication. It's literally just the delay of automation of exceptions by the masses kind of thing. Now, if all of my payers fell on that and all of my payment is now eight months later to get my profit, I've got a big problem. I'm not going to meet payroll, guaranteed not to meet payroll because there's not enough profit in the PT industry where if I was selling a Lamborghini and it cost me, I have no idea how much they cost to make, but let's just say they cost 100,000 to make, but I'm selling them for $800,000. If I sell one, I got enough cash flow to pay for all my staff at that dealership for a long time. If I'm selling like the bottom of, you know, Kia and my profit's like 2000 or 1000 I need to sell a bunch of those to keep my lights on kind of thing. And in PT, in most practices, we're selling Kias. You know, our profit margin, to me, a very healthy clinic, 18 to 25% profit margin is an extremely healthy clinic. I mean, like true EBITDA, they are actually at the end of the day walking home with 18 to 25% profit margin. I'd say it's a very healthy clinic. And I'd also then, when I say very healthy, I'd want to look in the numbers more to look at things like how many places is that money coming from? Because it's all coming from one spot, then that makes me worried. And there's other things that make me worried. But, you know, I'd say it's a pretty healthy clinic. I'd say on average of what I've seen lately, outpatient clinic, depending on what state you're in, depending on some contracts, I would say we're more in the neighborhood of like 7 to 13%. I'd say on average of a good clinic. And I'd say negative four, and I don't mean that jokingly, like negative four to... 3% on maybe your standard clinic on the side of the street. 
And then below that on the clinics that are even doing poor, which are the ones looking for acquisition, because somehow the owner goes, I'm spending a ton of money. I've got this high payroll that stresses me out. I got to get lines of credit that I can't get anymore, which we'll get into that point in a second. And at the end of the day, I'm probably making less than if I was actually just going to go get an hourly job somewhere because they're working 100 hours a week. Maybe they take home 150 at 100 hours a week and they probably start realizing, wow, I could just go get a full-time PT job, let it be someone else's problem and moonlight at a sniff on the weekend and make more money and have vacation, have no headache. I don't care if a pipe bursts, it's not my problem. And it's a interesting spot to be in when the only thing you're looking at is top line revenue. And again, you're doing this performa of, I should see eight patients or 12 patients per day. My staff cost me this much. My rent cost me this much. My phone lines cost me this much. And you figure it all out and like, yes, I've got a 39% profit margin. Well, the reality is you have a 30% cancel rate or no-show rate. Your front desk is not collecting your copays up front like you thought they were. Your billing is sitting in 90 to 120 days. And the next thing you know, whatever profit margin you built up over, you know, maybe you built up 100000 in the bank over two years. You didn't reinvest it. You didn't spend it. You didn't pay yourself out. No distributions. And you're living off that. You know, that is floating your business. Okay, let's go get a line of credit. Sure. In 2008, I was offered a $2.5 million line of credit for just stating my name and birthday. I mean, money was, do you have a pulse? Let me give you a line of credit. I had three S-Corps at the time. My accountant was trying to convince me to go get the max lines of credit because they were coming out 0% for a while. Go get those lines of credit and literally go put them into something making you even 5% at the time and pay them back within 10 months and you will make, and he showed me the math and he was doing it himself at that time, especially. I didn't have as much comfort with money to like do stuff like that. Like that was just totally foreign and crazy to me to use someone else's money to make money, but like welcome to the world. I think like our yeah. world <laughs> system and our yep. everyone uses money. <laughs> you know, even the insurance companies, the reason why they don't pay you right away is they're making profit on your money. Yeah. Also called leverage. Yeah. Welcome yeah. to leverage. <laughs> Well, again, 2008, that got a lot of people, a lot of people did take that and bought real estate and then see you later. Back then, I started two companies and I needed the line of credit. I had a very expensive equipment, expensive people. I needed that line of credit because I had to start a business and I knew I had to ramp up expenses before I started having revenue. But again, I naively made my each test. I charged this, I could pay this. And I wasn't even thinking, well, the doctor who's my client may not pay me for 100 days. I may have to chase him for the money, but if I chase him too hard, that's my client, then I can't chase him too hard. And therefore, I'll be closing off my future potential earning, where at least with PTs, we don't really have that because we're chasing the insurance company. So kind of takes that off the table. But it's a matter of nowadays, money is tight. You know, if people haven't tried to get a line of credit, or if they don't know what VCs are doing right now, or PE World's doing right now, banks in general, you know, if you want to get a hard loan, the numbers, even a legitimate loan, money is hard to come by, and it's really expensive to use right now. So if you think that you're going to say, well, I know on an accrual basis, I'm profitable. So I just need to take a line of credit out. Maybe I'll pay 3% or 4% line of credit to float me. So essentially you need to then go, if I had a 25% profit margin, I'm using 5% interest rate to pay things down, assuming that you don't even let it go too long, you now have a 20% profit margin, but you let it lapse two months and it's compounding. Maybe you now have a 14% profit margin and now it lapses three months and now you have an 11% profit margin. And you start going, well, where's all my money? Well, it's your line of credit. And that was only at like a four or 5% line of credit which don't exist today. I know really stable companies with huge coffers, backers, PEs, amazing companies, and they're lucky to get between 12 and 15% in a line of credit right now. Lucky. So now if you start saying 15% compounding to be able to pay the payroll because I didn't take into account the fact that I've got my money sitting out there in 
accounts receivable, which again, I don't love that word, but it's like the money I'm expecting is due and I want it, but it's sitting between 60 and 120 days out, which means I now need to float three or four rents, eight or 10 payrolls, two or three plumbers coming out to fix my leaky refrigerator, hot pack, hydroculator, whatever. I'm not going to draw any money out of the company for three or four months because I don't want to add to this line of credit at 15%. That alone will take that eight to 11% profitable company. And now you're looking for mergers and acquisitions because you just realize that whatever little profit you had in that company that you were selling those Kias, the interest rate was taking away your profit. And we're not building 200 bucks a visit and billing out and spending 50 bucks on that visit. Or I saw one hospital in Houston. I saw an EOB. The hospital is getting 818 bucks per therapy session. You know, for them, congratulations, you don't need a line of credit. Again, you're now selling the Lamborghinis and the world's your oyster and your runway and your ramp. But most people I'm sure working that you're talking to or they're probably listening to this today are not in that position. So, you know, they're making 52 bucks from one call, 57 bucks from Optum, 48 bucks from Ash as a, a huge majority. The Medicare advantages, if they're lucky and get anything, maybe they're getting 75 bucks a visit. And from Medicare, if they've got any, it's funny to think that Medicare is like the best payer here in Florida, but I know it's all the country, it's the case. Maybe you're eking out $103 if you've got PTAs, maybe it's down to 96 or 86. And now you're taking this line of credit to cover this whole notion of what we started talking about of the difference between cash accounting and accrual accounting, which is, yes, you build 68 bucks, but of that 68 bucks, it took 120 days to get that in the door. How many bills did you have between now and the 128 days? To get in the door and how many times can you sustain that? Like, do you have enough offset of really high paying stuff that's coming in quickly to offset that? And that's the big question you ask is, are people like really running this as a business? No, because that's really hard to figure out. Like, how do you model that? Right. How do you model like, If I have Excel, I have Excel. How do I model that to figure out what my actual cash needs are? And how do I model that to even figure out how much do I grow? Even if I have want and demand, can I afford another therapist? Can I afford another thousand square feet of the adjacent retail shop that someone's willing to knock a hole in the door and say, hey, you want this other thousand square feet? How do I even know? Because most people, if they're even like doing a PL or doing a balance sheet monthly, like I do PL, I do it accrual and cash in a balance, accrual and cash every month. I don't think most people are even doing that. So how do they then plan for true cash flow to make the decision of I need to add a staff member? Well, you may want to add a staff member because you've got want and demand. And you go, well, if I add a staff member and I've got one demand, I equal profit. Not necessarily. You equal expenses. Did you get cash flow from that? If you're in an all cash basis where you're getting money up front? Okay, totally different story. But most of us are still playing in the insurance. The thing about all this, by the way, and I think for anybody that's still with us on this, I think the thing is, is I don't think it's necessary to become a CFO for a practice owner. But what we're talking about here is, is basic financial literacy for business. Yep. So you said something earlier there about some of the best practices you've seen lately or somewhere between the 18 to 25%. Will be the top 1% practices I've seen. Right. And then all the way on the other end of the spectrum, you know, minus three, to, let's just call it minus three to plus three or whatever. And obviously a, probably a huge bell curve in the middle. But if you had to like summarize, what are the biggest mistakes between the 1% of practices doing that 18% margin versus the, you know, the other side of it doing minus three? Like, I know that's a really complex thing. It depends, all that. But when you look at these things... I think the wrong word's mistakes. Some of it's completely out of people's... Like, let's take South Florida, where I've been for a long time now. If I did nothing different between 2010 to today, and I used PTAs, let's say, but I've done nothing different in 50% of my business in Medicare, 50% commercial, let's say, 
I didn't make a mistake, let's say, maybe you're going to say, well, my mistake was not being adapting and adopting to change. And maybe my mistake was X, Y, Z, but let's just stay on this line of thought. I have not done anything that I would consider a mistake, but MPPR came into existence, multiple payment procedure reduction, which knocked out roughly 28% of the average visit. So 28% of my profit gone without me doing anything. Medicare has reduced reimbursement by about 10%. So if I said it's 50% of my contract, so that's 5%. Now I'm up to like well over 30% of my profit is gone. Then I throw in a PTA and I lost another 15% of my profit. And I've done nothing, nothing different. Like everyone loves me. My staff loves me. They don't take a lot of pay raises. So did I make a mistake? Yeah, maybe I made a mistake by going into business in South Florida. Maybe that's my mistake. But what did I do as, you know, my question to you would be like, what did that person do as a mistake versus what did the regulated industry that you don't set prices on compared to like if I open up a hot dog cart, I set my prices, there's market demand. Then you get through like a whole different business 101 class. Do I want to have a $50 hot dog and I'll sell three of them a day to a very elite area and they're just the best dogs anyone will ever get or just mystique around this? Because maybe it's like a pop-up shop and I appear places wearing this weird outfit and I get $50 a hot dog. Or do I just sell them for 30 cents a pop at the corner because they only cost me 10 cents and I just blow it out on volume, which by the way, I did have a hot dog stand growing up and I set up shop in Bristol, Connecticut outside ESPN and (laughs) Dr. Dogs, if anyone wants to remember my history there. You know, that learns different lessons as far as that's a different type of business compared to a regulated business, a business where I don't set prices. Like I don't know too many PTs, like I know a company who helps with this, but I don't know too many PTs who go and set their contractual rates and calls up United Healthcare and Optum and goes, this is why you should pay me more. I do know PTs who want to, like they call me to hire people and say, can you go negotiate better rates? And I was like, based on what? Why are you going to get better rates? I have a colleague I went to school with who's got a PT clinic in Immokalee, Florida, which is growing. I mean, but she's been there since 2001. Immokalee was Immokalee in 2001. You have to look it up on a map. It's like dead center state between Fort Lauderdale and Naples. I think Edwin James, a famous football player came out of, I think it was Edwin James came out of Immokalee. Immokalee is very lower socioeconomic. These days, though, there's a town called Ave Maria that sprung up near it, which brought a higher socioeconomic. So Immokalee is like in this weird stuff. But she was complaining about rates. And it's like, you are the only therapy clinic in like a 15, 20, 30 mile radius. You go negotiate your rates. You know, tell them to take it or leave it. You call up one call and say, I'm a hundred bucks a visit. Take it or leave it. Because one call has a duty and obligation to find therapy clinics for their people. They're going like, good for you. But I'm in Palm Beach County. Again, there's probably a thousand therapy clinics in Palm Beach County. So what am I doing different that I want different rates? Is my total cost of care lower? Is my length of stay lower? So again, your question was, you know, what mistake are they doing? I don't know that it's mistakes as much as the industry has catastrophically turned on them, where 1980s and 1990s is a business to get into and you'll be able to make some money even if you're naively successful. A term that I'm using basically meaning like, you don't really know what you're doing, but you're billing, you're getting paid a decent amount, you've got some staff and you're making some money. Like, congratulations, you negotiated a decent release and you're in a wanted area and you made a name for yourself. But someone like opening up a practice today in South Florida, which I'd love to know the stats of the average length of a clinic that opens today, how long it stays open. I don't think the answer is more than a year. They run into the stark reality of, did they make a mistake? To use your statement of what mistake. But then you get into stuff like, okay, so now I've got to pivot and adopt. Do I just close my shop? Which the answer for some people is that's probably the smartest thing to do instead of just going in debt for, you know, taking a line of credit on your house and double mortgage. And, you know, some people, unfortunately, the answer is yes, close the practice. Cut off the arm before it kills the rest of your business or your body. But I also think there's things where it's like, 
the models of how you pay your staff, clinical staff, I'm talking. That can be different. Now, there's weird things you have to watch out for, for labor laws, you know, who could be a contractor versus an employee. And But there are models we can get into, like, you've got a base salary of X, and then I'm going to come up with some way that's not fee splitting and that's legal to essentially have you pull the rope in the same direction where if the clinic's making money, you're making money and you're not getting paid the same to sit there for two hours on a rainy day that you are when you've got six people sitting in front of you. And maybe I tie it to satisfaction scores. Maybe I tie it to average billing per visit. Maybe I tie it to productivity standards. But like, I do think, like I know one chain in our area was talking to me about coming up with some models for that because they realized that what they can't do is just pay an inflated physical therapist. They're paying them 30, 40, 50,000 more than they did 15 years ago. But the revenue, as I explained, is 20, 30, 40% less. It's not that they were like trying to like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get so creative and come up with this new business model of how to pay staff. It was that or shut your doors. So maybe your mistake is you didn't adopt and come up with new payment models for staff. Maybe your mistake is you signed a lease that you thought was just such a good location to be in that it was worth the extra 8000 in overhead a month. Maybe that's a mistake. Maybe you had enough of a following that you could have gone to like a class C place and done just as well and have a $2,000 a month overhead to cover there. Maybe your mistake is not paying attention enough to the proper metrics. And then your question would be, what are the proper metrics? And I think I'd have to really think hard about it. But things like accounts receivable, things like satisfaction. Someone was talking today and I commented, you know, probably a really good metric that's probably overlooked as far as how many things it stands for is your no-show cancel rate. Probably the more I internally meditated on it tells a lot about is the value of what you're delivering good for a simplistic term. Are you delivering value? For the money that you're asking, the time you're asking, the energy you're asking, are you delivering value? And maybe that's the mistake someone's making is that they think that having three Cybex machines and four exercise bikes and two lap pull-down cables is value where someone else might go, hey, for $10 a month, I can go to Planet Fitness and I've got all this equipment. And you just watched me do, or their perception is that you just watch them do these exercises. You know, I sat on an exercise bike for 30 minutes and Ben billed me 68 bucks for that. I could have gone and done that somewhere else. They threw a hot pack on me and I don't even like heat. And I was sweating through my nice new blouse. They didn't even offer me a gown or whatever. You know, I have to go home and change. I didn't have time to go home and change. I don't see value in that. So probably not paying attention. I think you and I were talking and I brought up these shows where it's like Restaurant Impossible, (laughs) where it's just that like blinders are on. And they were once very successful. All these were once successful restaurants, right? I mean, most of them, from the still bad story we're here, we're successful restaurants. But then all of a sudden, it's like they have one customer a day. There's shrimps. It's like in an outside freezer where the raccoons are sleeping with it. And all of a sudden, they're just like, I don't know what's wrong. Well, you know, you haven't updated your menu since 1986. You haven't updated the carpet the core since 1983. Like at some point, what was working for you, you didn't adopt and change and it's not working for you. And you need to adopt and change. And I think there's some probably complacent practice owners. Maybe that's a mistake of... Are they adopting and adapting to change? Like I still think from what I've gone in, because I used to do a lot of audits for compliance. People who have either got a targeted probe and edit, people who are put on focused medical review. And it's like, what am I doing wrong? Well, when I walk into these clinics, they almost all look the same. They're like, wow, like the dust shows that you built this clinic in 1983 and the carpet still smells of 1983. And your mindset, and you just never kept up with the times and you didn't keep up with the fact that some of the stuff you might've gotten away with before there was like, things like CERT from Medicare and before there were ZPICs and before there were computer algorithms looking for fraudsters, 
you aren't being fraudulent, but you were taught during a time when it was like, I'm going to build the highest unit for every patient I can, 4.5 units, three times a week. Well, if that's your entire success to your business and those are the metrics you're going on and that's your KPIs, maybe you really should be exiting this industry. But there's other things to look at like, okay, why is my cancel rate 32%? Well, maybe it's because you're only open till 4.30 and it's really hard for someone from work to get there at 4.30. So your last appointment at 4.30 is high cancel. Well, maybe if you're open to seven, it's a different story. Maybe you just need to close. Like that's something I noticed and it's completely tangential. I've noticed there's a lot of clinics who are afraid to close for some time during the day. You know, they're afraid of that one person who wants that one to three slot, let's say. Whereas like, you understand that if you close down, that's staff that you don't need to pay for. And for your admin staff, that's two or three uninterrupted hours where patients are not at the front desk, not asking questions. There's not emergencies. Just get stuff done time. Like two hours in the middle of the day, call the insurance companies, call people who have, you know, who owe you money, send out the mailers. I admire a clinic who's like, I'm shutting down from 12 to 3. That's just not a busy time for me. I'm shutting my office at 3 on Friday. So my cancel rate after 3 o'clock is 72%. Why am I going to pay for all the staff and overhead and ruin my Friday night for the three people who do show up and not the 12 who don't? Right. Again, then you might say, well, if your value is higher, maybe all 13 will come in. And that's something you've got to weigh out. But I don't think it's a mistake as much as people were doing business as usual for a long time. And a 2% payment cut, if you're running a 30% profitable business, doesn't sound that daunting. But all of a sudden, it's another 3%, another 20%, 28%, 15%. Like, holy cow, it just went from a 30% EBITDA to a 4% EBITDA. Now you're at 4% EBITDA and you're not selling Lamborghinis. Or when our profit margin is small, our gross revenue pales in comparison to our net revenue. That would worry me. Like, that would worry me to the point that I'd be looking for a sale or drastically doing something different. But there's a lot of people sitting there at a 4% profit margin. They're probably saying, like, maybe I'll expand next door. Maybe I'll hire three more people. Maybe I'll buy that expensive laser. Maybe I'll do whatever. And it's like, oh my goodness, you know, maybe you should be thinking about the fact that your business not be open tomorrow. Yeah. And maybe mistake was the wrong word for me to use. But I think the thing is, I'm going to sound really cynical here, but I just think that especially now, so we're recording this in the early part of 2024. And just like clockwork at the beginning of every year, everybody's just grumbling about Medicare cuts and fee cuts and all this stuff. And really what it is, is it's kind of like, those are factually correct, no doubt about it. But at the same time, it's kind of like the boogeyman around the corner. You know, your rational brain knows that like the boogeyman doesn't really exist. This is, this is just kind of how business works. The boogeyman doesn't exist. The real problem is, is like most practice owners don't look inwards. And, you know, if I were, again, I admit that maybe mistake was the wrong word to use, but I would say if I had to like kind of summarize where you're going with this and kind of like the message I think I hope people get from what you're talking about here is, is that the mistake, if I'm allowed to use that word for now, is undervaluing the importance of just basic financial literacy. You know, to your point, should I be open one to three or should I be closed? Are those hours less profitable or not? And so it's almost easier to like paint the boogeyman as the enemy because it feels good and you get your rage off your chest and all that when it's actually much harder conceptually to Google something or go listen to you or Jerry Durham or some of these other guys talking about cancel rates. You know, I think Jerry's talked multiple times on his show and even on ours about how like what the difference financially has been when he's gotten a cancel no-show rate to drop by even 1%. Yeah. Like I said, it's probably a completely understated metric. All throughout terms of the national industry average, as far as I think and know, somewhere between 20 and 25% in parts of the country which you might be like, okay, then double book every other hour and you account for that kind of thing. Well, 
that has its own ramifications too, because you may then be watering down your experience and the amount of people. And then people might start going like, I literally, I was in clinics. I think I told you, like one of my first couple of years in practice, I was seeing like 38 patients per day. And people would cancel and go, I know Ben's so busy, I'm doing him a favor. Like they literally say like, I'm doing him a favor not coming tonight because his eight o'clock night slot is so filled up um, where I would just be accommodating. It's like, well, you work till seven, you live in DC, you have to drive to Sterling. You know what that could be like. We were open till nine o'clock. And if someone came in at 823, we didn't say we're only gonna do 42 minutes of your treatment. So we're there till 930. People had to go to work in the morning. We opened, our first patient was 6.45 in the morning. But how many people were at the door at 6.45? For two of us, I don't know, like eight. We even had like a little shower and change room. People would shower after go to work. But like, was their experience a little watered down? Almost definitely. But did they value the fact that we opened up at 6.45 for them? Yes. And they had no, you know, their no-show rate wasn't too bad because they knew we were accommodating enough and no one else in that area, you know, Sterling Cascades, Dulles, like no one else was opening up at 6.45 in the morning to get people in the door, which meant I had to be there at 6.30 to like have the charts ready and vacuum and all that stuff. So canceled no-show rate probably is a really understated metrics. It's probably something where like, maybe it's one of those things where in the therapy world, we have these clinical outcome measures and someone will develop a form and it's like the PFQ 193 and it's 193 questions. And then some research cohort will go, we compared the PHQ, but we took it down to 30. We found that it's just as valid as a PHQ 193. So the PHQ 30, you can do 30 questions to get the same validity of your results. And then someone comes through and goes, well, I did a PHQ 12. And that got me the same results as the 30 and the same results of 193. Or it's 1% off, but that only took one minute instead of sitting down with a book. Like, boy, does that value? I wonder, and I'm not going to even try to figure this out, but I wonder if cancel no-show rate could be that like PHQ 1. Like, I wonder if that says so much about a business. Like if I was a business purchaser and I walked in and just said, what's your cancel no-show rate? And based on that was like, I'm out. (laughs) I don't need to hear anything else. Like it it may be that much of a telling thing that it might be like the PHQ 1. I actually just anecdotally would bet you that you're right there. Because to your point, it's sort of a proxy metric of the value or at least the perceived value. How your front desk is working, how your collections are really... Correct. There's a lot that ties into that, right? It's almost like a filtering function that at least gets you to the second meeting. You know, it's interesting, just as an aside, again, I'm not from healthcare, right? I come from tech investing, so yeah, but I'm going to say we to make it sound bigger. It's just my wife and I, but you know, we've been investing in broad strokes, tech companies, and even restaurants and bars and stuff like that for 15 plus years. Here's one of the interesting parallels we're sort of noticing. So over the course of the last 15 years, we've invested in over 3,000 of these companies now, like all across the United States, probably closer to 3,500 now. But anyway, here's the interesting part. Obviously, failure rate is a big part of that. You know, greater than 50% of businesses across a lot of different industries fail within the first two years. That's just how it works. The numbers just kind of always wash out that way. So again, we, I make it sound bigger than it is, just my wife and I, but we did an early analysis of what causes that. Like, hey, could we detect what happened? Could we maybe, I don't know, stop betting on things that are going to fail? One of the interesting things that came out of that little research study, so way back when we like sort of started to hire research assistants to help us with this. Let me just cut to the chase. So unsurprisingly, the number one reason why companies fail is because they run out of money, either because they didn't get enough clients or didn't get off the ground or whatever. Their burn rate to runway didn't match. Yeah. Now at face value, it's like, duh, of course, Paul, that's not rocket science. Okay. Tell me something I don't know. Where it gets really interesting is when you go reframe the study and you say, well, wait a second, business failure is the symptom. What is the actual problem? 
Now, here's where it gets really interesting, and I see a lot of parallels with the healthcare industry and particularly practice owners. So let me just give you the answer first, and then we'll talk about it. So when we started to reframe it as the failure itself and our loss of capital being the symptom of what happened, and we then focused in on what in the world actually happened, what was the real problem? Turns out we have a bias towards founders and entrepreneurs that tend to be very intellectually curious. I don't want to say educated because that doesn't mean they all have PhDs or something like that, right? But the point is, is like we have a bias towards quote unquote smart people. Here's what's interesting. If you look at the data across our portfolio, again, one subset, but I'm not sure there's many other firms or companies or investors that have this large of a portfolio. What's fascinating is what happened at the first sign of trouble. So in other words, what happens is, at least in our portfolio, is when a smart intellectual, educated person is faced with this reality of finance and all that stuff kind of going sideways, what they should be doing, just you know, as an example, is pick up the phone and start trying to find more customers. What they actually do is they focus inward on what they know how to do best. So the example I'll give you just as brass tacks is, if you end up investing in a coder, like an engineer that can write code, right? By definition, that's something that's hard to learn and you have to love to do that. At the first sign of adversity, natural human response is to like get away from the pain, right? And you go to like what you know best. So inevitably, what these engineers will do is they'll say, oh my God, I'm not going to make payroll next month. I'm, I've got six months of cash, you know, whatever it is. And they say, but if I build this next feature, revenue will come. They focus inwards on the craft they know, right? It turns out that feels good. They kind of had a pain response. They go inwards and they made the pain disappear because they ignored it. And they just have this like false sense of hope. Rarely works out. I can only think of one out of 3,500 companies where it turned out positive for them at that point. But I see the same thing with practice owners. You have these practice owners who, by definition, have to have gone to some amount of medical school, medical training. I mean, that's not easy to do. You got to be kind of smart to do that. And then they start a practice because they want to help people and maybe they want to make a lot of money. Who knows, right? But either way, they often overlook this sort of financial literacy part. I mean, they might know enough about profit is the difference between you know revenue and expenses. But then all of a sudden, cash flow hits them in the face. Wait, 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 wait. I thought it was just visit count that mattered. I thought I engineered for that. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of people come in the door and they tell me how great I am. But actually then what ends up happening? Like they hit this wall, they get scared and all of a sudden they go back to what they know how to do best, which is like, let me just focus inward, almost forget that the boogeyman exists. Let me blame somebody else actually. Medicare, those guys, Congress, those guys. When in fact, what they really should be doing is trying to figure out the financial side of this business. Anyway, so my point is, I know that was poorly articulated, but it's interesting that there's so many similarities, whether you're running a healthcare practice, it's so similar to just like running a SaaS software as a service business as well. Ultimately, companies die, practices die because they run out of money, but they usually run out of money because the founder or the founding team or the entrepreneurial team that leads it, for whatever reason, kind of sticks their head in the sand and doesn't address the actual problem head on. In this particular case with healthcare, it's almost more important in this industry to understand the difference between cash flow and profit. In the tech world, they're all using Stripe. You know, somebody pays 99.9% .9 of the time, that cash is going to hit your account in two days. It's not, you could probably royally screw up and ignore your balance sheet <laughs> or your P&L, hopefully not both, but you could ignore one or both and generally be okay. Because they're probably the same. They're the same. You're cruel in your cash. They probably look the same. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's just like cash with Stripe. 
But this industry is really, really dangerous in the sense that like it can get away from you real fast. And that thing, to your point, whether we're talking about cancel rates or even like aging account receivables, a percent or two here may not look like a lot until you see the compounding or the flow through or trickle down effects to everything else. I'll give another great example of cash flow. I'm in a, like I said, I've got a unique, bizarre practice that I run now. It's like, I don't want people to use this as the example, but all my staff are contractors. I, in theory, am only spending money if I've billed more than they've charged me. Like in theory, I've got this invaluable design where I can only make money. I signed on with a group called the DCE, which is a risk entity for Medicare. It's a group of physicians like an ACO. It's a type of ACO now. Now it's the ACO reach model, but they take on risk. And so therefore Medicare pays them and then they pay me, which delays the Medicare payment a little bit because they've got a different disbursement and they have to receive it. The first time that, and they probably make up 80% of my payment. So the first time that they had a payment mess up, which again, not only can Medicare mess up payment, but now they can mess up payment. They have a glitch in their system and their TPA essentially doesn't adjudicate and doesn't disperse whatever. It delayed 80% of my cash that I was on a routine basis for by like two weeks. And their mind is probably like, ah, oh, it's two weeks, so sorry, no big deal. But it's like, wow, no, that's that's two weeks extra of 80% of my revenue. And it was the first time that I, I was counting down to the pennies what I need to get a cash infusion to cover payroll kind of thing. Where I was in a model before where it's like, well, I pay every two weeks, Medicare pays two weeks, I'm in a one-week delayed cycle. Like, this can't lose. But there's an example of things like out of your control where if you don't have in the bank enough to say, I can sustain three pay cycles without revenue coming in and those kind of thought and process decisions before you go, will I reinvest this money into another staff member? Will I, you know, at some point, most healthcare practices are not profitable enough for the owner to be a only an owner and not offset some of the costs as a clinician also. So I've seen it where it's like, maybe the real hard answer is you need to fire that therapist you hired and you need to work 40 hours a week and now you could have a profitable company. Or just know that maybe you need someone 20 hours a week, you work 20 hours a week, but don't expect to make a ton of money in passive income. You know, I don't think a solo practice is going to be spinning off enough income for someone to have it to be a completely cash cow passive income compared to name chain here. Even if we're talking restaurants again, you know, even a McDonald's, someone told me, I think each McDonald's only spits off like 50,000 in cash a year. And I'm sure I could probably Google and get the actual number, but I'm just pretending it's a small number. But the reason why those franchise owners do okay is because they get a region. And in that region, they may have 11 McDonald's and if 11 McDonald's are spitting off 50000 each, that's not terrible if it's one piece of their portfolio that they know everyone's going to keep coming to McDonald's. It's not a bad thing to have. But I think there's a lot of therapists who think like, you know, I'm a little older. I'm kind of tired. I'm going to bring in this young gun, maybe underpay him a little bit. And I'm just not going to work much. But then also wonder why all of a sudden they went from a semi-profitable company to cash flow issues. And then they turn inward and say, well, I need to go pay more for marketing. I need to go do this. Or maybe you just realize that you can't actually, you don't make enough cash to have you sucking off 80000 a year in your pocket, 100000 a year in your pocket, 150000 a year in your pocket, which I've seen PT, PT owners try to get passive income of 150, they're paying themselves 150000 a year and wonder who don't see patients. They don't generate revenue, but wonder why they're getting into problems. So it's a real thing. Like I said, I think with how tight money will be last year, this year, at least for probably another year. It's probably even more real than it was because the days of just get a line of credit to offset that, if you can get one, the interest you'll pay on that will just destroy your business.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices. It helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo.